Hey, are you ready to demonstrate your organization's commitment to data protection and government? And I mean your company, not just you. Boost Brand Trust with AI certification, incorporating principles from industry standards like NIST and the OECD. And you can navigate all of those privacy regulations confidently with TrustArc's robust AI governance solutions. Get a trustee certified privacy seal for your company, signifying organization's commitment to responsible data practices. With trustees' proven methodology over years, you can achieve compliance with AI laws around the world and also enhance your general privacy posture. Secure your brand's competitive advantage with a trusted seal now. Get AI certified today. Visit trustart.com slash AI dash certified. That's trustart.com slash AI dash certified. This is Serious Privacy by Trustart. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. For many people, cookie banners are one of the biggest frustrations when surfing online. Most people just click I accept to get rid of the banners. Others continue looking for a decline all button. And those who actually go into the setting in recent years will have noticed that the banner has become more granular, but also more confusing. Next to the consent options, suddenly legitimate interest options appeared, and it became less and less clear what cookies would be set in which situation. A long-awaited decision of the Belgian Data Protection Authority on February 2nd, 2022, will probably bring some relief. The complex cookie banner, which is driven by the transparency and control framework of the Interactive Advertising Bureau, has been found not to comply with the GDPR on multiple fronts. Our guests today, Anne-Charlotte Recker and Julian Deckers, both work as legal advisor for the litigation chamber of the Belgian DPA and are happy to provide more insights into the decision uh, against IAB. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So I'm absolutely delighted to have y'all two on here. Actually, I'm waiting for the day I have a guest when I go, I don't want you on my podcast. <laughs> that, that's never happened. That's never happened. Maybe we have that's fabulous be- people on here. That's because but- we have control over the guests, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Probably just a little, right? Okay, so... Apparently, I have a snarly chihuahua with me today, so if y'all hear growling, that's where it's coming from. (laughs) But let's make that the unexpected question then. If you had to be an animal, what animal would you choose? Wow, maybe I'd be a water animal, maybe a dolphin to roam freely through the oceans. Yes, that sounds good. (laughs) <laughs> Love it. A dolphin. Oh, that just makes you think of all nice, quiet oceans and water. And Good weather. Nice. <laughs> yes. So, Julian, how about you? Looking at the fact my mother has two Jack Russells and she really spoils them, I'd say I'd be Jack Russell. <laughs> because usually those are very spoiled dogs that uh, happen to, to run in the outside anytime they like. So, uh, yeah, that would be my answer. Full of energy. Yep. Full Sounds of energy. Good. Love it. All right, Paul. I think I'd be a blackbird, just a blackbird, just being outside, flying around a bit, uh, just being in the forest and being able to sing very beautifully. That sounds poetic. (laughs) (laughs) 
I like that. You're like her. You, you're looking for the freedom of, of movement and being away from everything mm-hmm. that's us. I, I think I'm going to be a little bit more like Julian and say, I'd be a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Just sitting in the corner, observation, everything a that's sp- going on. <laughs> yes, a spoiled, rotten, indoor cat. That That's what I would be. I can't go with the Jack Russell because of this snarly chihuahua right ah. here that you're going to hear from on the podcast. <laughs> All right. So, Paul, over to you. First questions. First of all, thank you very much again for joining us. You've been involved in the decision of the litigation chamber against IAB Europe on the transparency and control framework. What, in your view, is the most important part of this decision? I think the most important part is really about the um, the fact that the TCF, so the transparency and consent framework, which has been developed by IAB Europe, defendant in this case, has been deemed not compliant with the the GDPR in regard of many aspects, but the most important one being transparency towards the users, I think. Mm -hmm. And of course, the impact of this decision is is huge due to the the popularity of the framework. So uh, this framework is being used by many websites in the EU. And so, of course, given the the observation that the litigation chamber made regarding the compliance, it, it does have impact not only on IAB Europe, but also on other actors that are using or relying on the TCF for their websites or applications. Mm. So for those of our listeners who don't completely understand or, or are not familiar with the Belgian DPA's approach to uh, to investigations and enforcement decisions, you work in separate phases, right? First the inspection and then the litigation chamber takes over for the enforcement part or for the, the sanctions part. Um, well, not only we. So one of the elements on which the litigation chamber bases itself to take its decision is the uh, report produced by the inspection service. However, it's not the only element which we base ourselves on, and we're completely independent from the uh, inspection service. We also take into account external information. So, but that's certainly mm-hmm. one of the pieces we rely upon. Okay, very good, and. Um, what struck me most probably in the decision, uh, of course, the the expectation was already for a long time between privacy professionals that the transparency and consent framework would be found non-compliant with the GDPR because of the legitimate interest part. But you've gone much beyond just pointing towards legitimate interest and actually, well, maybe <laughs> this is too much of a word, but you basically tore apart the whole... Well, that's not entirely the case because we, we did not completely ban the TCF as a framework. So that's, uh, I think, another key aspect of this decision uh, that we base our assessment on the current version of the TCF. So the current policies that are being implemented by IB Europe and that are enforced on the organizations. So we we did not completely ban it because we think it is still important for users uh, to be informed of what happens with their data, what they can send to, so what happens when they go on a website or an application. And that part, we, we could not completely dismiss it or completely ban it and, and, and revert back to the previous situation where there was no transparency and consent framework at all and it just happened behind the curtains completely. So, so I think, yeah, we... We did see that there were major flaws with the TCF, the main one being the absence of any legal ground Mm. for the processing of the preferences themselves, so which are captured in a so-called TC string. And and this this encapsulation is entirely defined and and, and developed by IB Europe. And imposed upon. And imposed upon. So that's the first aspect, the fact that the preferences of the users are processed without any legal ground uh, to do so. And in, in that regard, the defendants did not agree with the fact that the, those preferences were 
personal data of the users, but we did find that it was indeed personal data because mm -hmm. the, the purpose of the TCF and the TC string is really to identify the preferences of a single user in order to, 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 to be able to determine whether you can or not process their data. So Which would then allow to single them out of a group as the GDPR defines it. Yeah, and, and also there's a moment where the user is actually identifiable. When the CMP places the cookie, it's able to read the IP address. So, of the device, indeed. Yeah. So one of the things that, that surprised me probably is that you also consider IAB Europe to be a data controller. Can you explain a bit why that is the case and also what consequences that might have for other organizations acting as a, a service provider in, in similar settings? Well, we saw based on the inspection reports and also on the, uh, based on the, the arguments that were provided by IAB Europe during the hearing, that they do define certain characteristics um, or certain aspects of the processing of the TC string itself. So uh, first of all, they define how the TC string looks like. So what does it contain? What information does it contain? How the CMPs, so the consent management platforms, are supposed to treat the preferences, where they are supposed, uh, supposed to store them. How long? Um, for how long they must keep them, because IB Europe also defines itself as a managing organization with regard to the TCF itself. And so with regard to the processing that happens within the TCF, and as a managing organization, they also require the participating organizations, being in most cases the, the CMPs, the consent management platforms, to keep records of consent and be able to provide those records to IB Europe as soon as they ask for it. So there are many elements that we consider as essential means for the processing that are defined by IB Europe and imposed on the participants. And in addition, the TCF, the purpose of the TCF is defined by IB Europe as a means for ensuring compliance when, when organizations decide to process data based on the open RTB protocol, for example. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really this combination of defining the, the purposes and defining the, the means of the processing that render, in our view, IB Europe as a data controller. And in practice, they impose these decisions on, or on the participating organizations through their policies uh, and their technical specifications. I think, I mean, it's great how you explained why you consider that IAB is a data controller. Do you think that this decision will also set a precedent for for other organizations that they should start considering seeing themselves as a data controller instead of just just being a data processor? Well, we, we did have some, some brainstorming regarding the, uh, the comparison that um, some other people made between IB and certification bodies mm -hmm. or other organization, organizations that indeed develop standards and then uh, have them those standards being used by other organizations. And, That's yeah, fascinating. But, but we really found that there, was, there were some differences between IB Europe and, for example, an, an ISO organization or the the, uh, the ISACA organization, I think, mm -hmm. because contrary to those organizations, IB Europe really not only develops the, the framework and, and the policies, documentation, etc., but they also enforce them on the participants and they also have this management organization role that they take, which in our view makes it very different from other certification bodies who would just either control the implementation of by other companies without defining the standard themselves or they would only develop the standard, but then be done with it and, and not be the ones that will either implement it or enforce it or control the, the compliance with that framework. You know, when I read your decision, I, I, I think it was either a blog or an internal advisory. I advised that this might be something that customers need to pay a closer attention to as to their decision making over the data 
which for a long time I have always said that it's interesting that a lot of cloud providers are chosen because of their expertise. So to say that they're following the instructions of a controller is a little bit of a, a false construct. But, you know, I didn't really think about it in terms of them being a, a certifying body. Because in that respect, TrustArc is a certifying body when it comes to our own certifications that we do, whether it's the Privacy Shield certification or it's our own certifications uh, that we do for enterprise privacy or international transfer or the APEC CBPRs that we're a certifying body. We're absolutely the mm -hmm. controller. And we push back on companies that are saying, how can you possibly be the controller when this is our data? I'm like, because we're an independent third party third body third party we're an independent third party so we have to be the controller because we can't do yeah. as you instruct us to do or how could our findings possibly be independent so with that logic julian i think i agree with you <laughs> up until now i think i disagreed with you but i think i agree with you now i think you won me okay. over yeah on we one. we read in i mean we could find in several doctrines articles that uh, cmps are often regarded as processors but it actually really depends on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm. So would you then also say that the organizations that implement the TCF on their website as part of their cookie banner, that they are joint controllers with the IAB also requiring a joint control agreement, or would that be a controller to controller transmission? Well, on that aspect, as, as I just said, it, it, it depends on the uh, the case-by-case -case implementations okay. because the TCF is, is, a, is a very complex right. landscape and, and which... which offers various possibilities of implementation. So as we, as we try to, to, to nuance a bit in our decision, in, in, in some cases, and some authors have highlighted this, this issue, some CMPs, for example, decide not to offer to website publishers the, the possibility to add an opt-all or reject-all button, for example, in the interface. And, and that is often the case right. with smaller players, smaller website owners, which then would not have this due diligence of, of still negotiating with the CMPs to still add that, that button. And so hmm. it really depends on the case. But some CMPs do define, for example, the, uh, the list of, of vendors that are presented by default and sometimes ticked on by default based on the legitimate interest. And by doing so, they do define the recipients of the data, which is considered as an essential means of... So yeah, this is certainly something for everybody who has implemented the TCF. Don't wait until the IAB comes with further guidance two months down the road on, on how they are going to change their framework in order to comply with the Belgian decision, but also start doing your own homework right now to make sure you are compliant as well, because it could be indeed that you are a joint controller with IAB and that you will need to negotiate on, on top of everything else also a joint control agreement or that you need right. other legal documentation, other forms of contract to make sure that the whole flows are, are, are legal that are taking place via your cookie banner. Precisely. Right. So one of the, the things you just mentioned um, uh, a few minutes ago is that IB is also uh, working on the open RTB standard, I think you called it, the, the real-time bidding. So basically auctioning my data in order to be able to show me an advertisement. Until a few years ago, I had not even heard of RTB. I never knew it was a thing. My former colleague, Rob <laughs> Van Eyck, who is now with the Future of Privacy Forum, he did his PhD on that particular issue and, and eluded me on into this, this whole scary world. That you wish yes, you that never I heard wish of? Yes, that I never heard of, but apparently it's still a thing. <laughs> Can you talk a bit more about 
how this falls together with the TCF and and what the litigation chamber of the Belgian DPA said about it. Right. Okay. Yeah, we're absolutely aware of uh, Rob van Eyck's uh, thesis, which is interesting, indeed very well interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, but so just to connect the dots a bit, maybe I should start by giving a short explanation of what the OpenRTB standard is. Yes, please. <clears throat> and then explain what the link with the TCF is. So the OpenRTB protocol is, uh, along with the authorized buyers of Google, one of the most used uh, protocols for what we call real-time bidding, <clears throat> which is actually the instantaneous automated online auction of users' profiles for the purpose of buying and selling advertising space on website or applications. So concretely, when a user goes into, like, goes on a website for the first time, a pop-up appears. That's the interface provided by, by the CMP. And that one, he can consent or object to the collection sharing of his his, prefer, his uh, personal data. Now, this is where the TCF, so it facilitates websites and applications which are participating in, uh, in the TCF to capture through the CMP's interface, the user's preferences. So these preferences are stored in what we call the TC string. And this TC string is then shared with the participating, uh, in, with the organization participating in the OpenRTV. I don't know if I've been very clear. I can still follow. <laughs> it happens. It happens faster than exactly, instantaneously, yeah, yeah. right? Half a second. Yeah. So it's it's not like an auction house where they're sending it out and you can wait five minutes for someone to respond and say yes, we want to bid on that one. This is. I mean, like, the auctions I'm involved in now they you take can a week. Even think it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In half a second, millions of advertising spaces are sold. So it really goes very fast. <laughs> half a second. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> or less. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that's really fast. Well, and and then for for guidance, and Paul, please forgive me if you were about to jump in with another question, but you were talking about guidance for the companies that are following this decision, especially those that are using the real-time bidding in the controller relationship, what they might need to negotiate. I, I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what companies should do now if there's a possibility. I mean, I know they should get rid of the data they've collected under it because it's illegal data at this point. I don't know how much faith y'all have in the controllers, the companies actually dumping the data. That would be interesting to follow up on. But what should they be doing if there's a plan possibly that they're going to come back with and maybe their platform can continue and there's going to be some sort of transition? Kind of like this mythical privacy shield we keep hearing about at some point there may be a plan and there may be a transition what do y'all and Anne Charlotte I'll come to you with this what do y'all recommend that companies especially the ones using the real-time bidding well if you're referring directly to IBs to come plan for action that we can't really say much because we'll just have to wait see what proposal they submit oh. <laughs> <laughs> is that not Obviously. what you wanted to hear <laughs> But in general, for organizations participating in the TCF, we just say, try and be really careful. Check if you're compliant with all the various criteria of the GDP. I think that would be the safest option. Thinking by themselves and being, making sure that they're compliant by themselves and checking everything. Don't just trust, but verify actually that everything you do with cookies on your website is compliant. And then we are not talking about the data transfers. That's a whole different issue, mm. but just the basic GDPR compliance and e-privacy compliance, because it, it, it all comes together. Precisely. Right. And the e-privacy wasn't mentioned in the decision, right? Well, it, it wasn't mentioned because it, was, it wasn't 
only the placement of a, of a cookie. It was really the entire processing that goes behind it or after the, the placement and, and right. the capture of the preferences placed as a EU consent V2 cookie on the uh, user's devices. So we didn't want to, to put too much focus on, on the e-privacy aspect because it's also what happens next. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the processing that occurs or the impact of the TCF on the processing occurring based on the open RTV protocol, basically. So very much a deliberate decision to avoid letting people sink into putting this into an e-privacy directive. Well, it, there is, of course, um, a clear link with e-privacy, but, but we didn't want to, to put too much emphasis on, on, on that part. Okay, I like that. So this is yet another decision that had to go through the European Data Protection Board for consideration because it has a, a significant cross-border effect. But this time, contrary to, for example, the decisions we saw in the past about Twitter and Facebook, we did not see a, a very big discussion, at least not a very big public discussion, in the European Data Protection Board. Is there f- broad support from the other data protection authorities for this approach? Or was there still some discussion where feedback from other DPAs led to changes in, in your final decision? Great question. Um, we did get some comments, but mainly we got two uh, reasoned and relevant objections. Mm-hmm. which then led us to make some changes in in the revised draft decision, yes. But there was no need to go to the, the Article 65, the, no. the, the, the dispute resolution mechanism. This, you, you were fine with the objections that you received and were able to address those. Absolutely. So we, we did have also various discussions with, with the, the other authorities as soon as we've published the, uh, the draft decision on IMI. We did invite the, uh, the other authorities to come to us with uh, with any questions or just to streamline the whole process as much as possible. And so we, we did nice. receive a few comments from authorities that maybe did not have any recent objection, but, but did have some comments to improve sometimes the readability of the decision or to clarify some aspects. Mm-hmm. But we did receive, as Angela said, two, two recent objections from two authorities, which were taken into account because they were relevant for the decision. So those were taken into account and we did not receive any further objections after we submitted the revised draft decision. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great to hear. And and please forgive the, the American mm-hmm. over here. But with that being the process, then this means there's not likely a high possibility of an appeal. There is because, well, the, the appeal is on a national level. So after that, the final decision has been published and uploaded into the IMI system. So that's a platform for exchange between the, the essays in Europe. Then it becomes a wholly national procedure and the parties might uh, launch an appeal against the decision. Indeed. Yeah. So the, the okay. Belgian DPA is acting as lead supervisor authority in this case. So any appeal will be brought against the the Brussels Market Court, mm-hmm. so which is the... Uh, Court of Appeal from okay. our decisions. And so the, the, both parties have 30 days starting from the, from the notification of the decision to, to appeal the decision. And, and, and given okay. the public stance of the IAB Europe so far, I would expect them to appeal and, and not just to uh, say, okay, well, we've tried our best and now we're going to change it. But obviously you are not, not able to comment on, on, on that yet. <laughs> which, is, which is completely fair. But um, say that there, right. that there would not be an appeal what what is what is next in 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 your mind would you indeed expect the IB to send you a letter two months from now with these are the changes that we are going to implement and will those be be reviewed and approved or is it just that they need to notify the changes that they make how does that work I thought that was a very interesting approach mm. 
Well, yes, now they have two months to submit uh, a proposal, a plan of action, and that one will indeed be reviewed by the data protection, by the Belgian Data Protection Authority, and then we'll see further. Yeah, and so does that go back to the inspection services, or is that the litigation chamber that would do that? That is something we cannot comment on right okay. now. But the, uh, the intention is indeed, once the, the action plan gets an approval, they would obtain six months to, to implement the, uh, the approved measures. Yeah, with, financial pe- with daily financial oh, penalties oh. if they don't comply. <laughs> oh, nice. But if I hear your, your timeline correctly, say there is no appeal, then IAB has two months to uh, present their, their alternative to the Belgian DPA, and then they will be given up to six months, but with daily financial penalties to, to roll it. So it might mean that we are still waiting until the end of the year before a new transparency and, uh, and consent framework is fully up and running. What should happen in the interim? Are all the old non-compliant banners, should they go offline immediately? Or is there also that same grace period between parentheses for, for those banners? Well, I wouldn't necessarily put it as a, as a grace period, because of course, the infringements are, I mean, the ones that we've identified are, are, are still very real. So the our advice would be to website publishers to, to indeed, as we have said earlier, to review all the vendors that are presented currently on their website and, and just make that assessment. Do they actually need all those vendors to be present on the website? Also identify which vendors are located maybe outside of the EU. And so, so we think that the due diligence is still effective and still needs to be applied by all the parties involved in the TCF as of right now, of course. And what about companies like TrustArc that offer the cookie consent banner and they may have customers who are using the IAB TCF? Well, again, it, it, it's a very difficult question for us to answer because it, it depends on, on, on the case, case by case. So how um, is it currently being implemented on the website or in the application of the uh, of the public? What were the instructions given? What were the possibilities offered to the publishers to maybe have a say on the list of vendors or the, the interface that is presented to data subjects? So it's, it, it's really a, a, a joint operation in that sense between the, the CMPs and the publishers just to make mm-hmm. sure jointly that the current configuration is indeed compliant with the GDPR. Basically, go do your homework. Okay. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and go do it right this time. Absolutely. Well, I think that is that is a great note to end upon. Thank you so much, Julian and, and Anshalot, for, for being with us today and explaining this, uh, this decision. As said, it's been long awaited. It gives all of us in the privacy community a lot to think about, a lot of homework. So thank you very much for being with us this week. Um, and thanks to all our listening uh, listeners for listening to yet another episode of Serious Privacy. If you like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us. Rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app or on your favorite podcast platform. And should you have any questions or suggestions, please reach out to us via Serious Privacy at trustark.com or info at seriousprivacy.eu, via Twitter at, at podcast privacy, or via LinkedIn. Just look for Serious Privacy and you'll find our page. You'll find Kay on Twitter as... Absolutely, even though I am unemployed. <laughs> well, that's now. just for another day. You will find Kay on Twitter yes. as Heart of Privacy and myself as your old Paul B. Until next week, goodbye. Thanks for having us. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. That was Serious Privacy.
So, Kay, did you hear that the Trustark Trust Center is revolutionizing the way businesses manage trust? I did! And with the Trust Center, achieving customer trust is no longer a months-long process. It can be just days. Yeah. Have you been in a situation where a customer wanted information and you need to scramble to find everything? Just imagine all of that was at hand in one central hub with info on privacy, legal, security, compliance, system availability. Yeah, you can lower your legal, regulatory, and reputational risk with instant updates and speed up your sales cycle with private and public document sharing. Trust Center solves the problem of red tape and dependencies, ensuring your trust and safety information is accurate, compliant, and available. And you know the best part? You'll save time and cost. How often have you gone to multiple departments and it's taken weeks so you can remove bottlenecks and effortlessly streamline your efforts? Trust Center, trust becomes your key differentiator in today's digital economy. Experienced enhanced customer trust, operational speed, and efficiency while enjoying comprehensive coverage for diverse stakeholders. So why wait? Start streamlining trust management with TrustArc's Trust Center. Visit TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. That is TrustArc.com slash more dash trust. There's a lot of trust in that. A lot of trust.